Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Treadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is The Man from Honolulu by Lawrence William Pedros. Captain Kavanaugh gravely wagged a forefinger. I have, he stated, aboard my yacht in the harbor, a man who can swim, Elliot Bay. He spoke quietly, but had a bombshell been exploded amidst the group on the Arctic Club veranda, it would not have caused a greater sensation. From every side came gasps of incredulity, and a dozen chairs loudly scraped the floor as their owners turned to stare at the speaker. It was the evening following Turns Cavill's unsuccessful attempt to swim Seattle's harbor, in which effort the world-famous athlete had lost his life. Captain Kavanaugh had returned but that morning from a cruise of the Friendly Islands, and as always, had brought back from such trips a fund of rare good stories. The boys at the club were wont to single him out and to start him yarning. The talk had finally gotten around to the tragedy of the day before, and when it is remembered that many athletes had attempted the four-mile swim from Seattle to the downtown wharves without one having accomplished the feat, it will be understood why everyone hung breathlessly on the words of a well-known man like Captain Kavanaugh. Yes, he reiterated in the same even voice, I have a man who can swim the harbor. In fact, he can cross it and return it without pausing to rest. If that $500 purse, which was put up for Turns Cavill, the professional, still stands, and the man of whom I speak is only an amateur, I think I can persuade him to take the risk. He is Hawaiian and claims to be of royal blood. His name is Kami something, but we call him the Duke for short. I picked him up in Honolulu. He is well-educated and very intelligent. I saw him do a few stunts in the surf, and I offered him a job. So he could get to the States. He jumped at the chance. Every evening during the run-up, as he entertained us with stories, there was one in particular that I remember well. And for a bare-faced lie, it outdoes everything I have heard before. The Duke though, sticks to it and swears to it and tells it with such evident sincerity that he almost convinces one. One night, a cockney sailor told a tale of pelagic sealing with a Russian ship among the Aleutians, and when he finished, the duke began to question him about the seals. It is an established fact, you know, the fur seals belong to the otter family and spend a greater part of the year in the warm waters near the equator, and make the long migration into the Arctic for the breeding season. When the Duke mentioned this, the Cockney got sarcastic and wanted to know what he knew about it, whereupon the Duke quietly replied that he knew seals better than any living man, because he had been with them on one of their annual migrations into the north, and lived with them for several months. 
At this, the cockney flared up and called the duke a blimey liar and went below to cool off. It was then that the duke told his weird story. When he was a kid of four, he was lost overboard one night from one of the native boats steering a gale off the islands. He outlived the storm, and when the morning came, he found himself out of sight of land and in the midst of a herd of seals, one of which took a fancy to him and adopted him. The seals were on their way to the Arctic, but was so gradual in the change in temperature of the water as they slowly forged north that the kid never noticed it. He had no clothing to begin with, and nature soon padded him out with the blubber like the seals till he was as roly-poly as any of them. Also, he grew a coat of silky fur which extended from his neck to the tips of his toes. He says the first real discomfort he experienced was when the herd reached the ice floes. It was a long time before he could accustom himself to sitting on the ice. At this point, an explosion of laughter greeted the narrator. He waited till it had subsided, then went on. The first month after the herd had reached its breeding grounds, the bleak shores of the Aleutians was a happy one for the kid. He had an abundance of food and all the baby seals for playmates. For hours at a stretch, he says, he used to take them in his arms and slide down the ice hummocks, or to sport with them and play in the water, playing games the likes of which human beings never dreamed. Then came the fur hunters, sailing ships filled with big, black-bearded men who drove the seals inland when they caught them sleeping on the shore or ice fields and ruthlessly slaughtered them. The kid quickly learned to fear the hunters, and because of his keener senses, became lookout for the herd, perching himself for hours at a time upon the ice ridge and keeping watch out over the fog banks for the spars of the ships. He has a hazy recollection of a dark, gloomy day when he was standing guard as usual, and the hunters slipped up on them in skin canoes under the cover of the fog. Caught unawares, the herd bolted inland, the hunters pursuing with club and spear, and soon the ice for acres around was dyed red with the slaughter. Only a few of the seals escaped, and the kid managed to get away with these, but they would have nothing more to do with him, no doubt blaming him for the slaughter of their companions. So he left them and struck off by himself. Alone he wandered from island to island, meeting with many adventures, and many times narrowly escaping the hunters, till he at last came upon another herd that would take him in. A few weeks later, when the seals returned to the waters of his home, the kid followed, there to be picked up by a tribe of his own people and adopted by the chief. He grew up, his remarkable ability to handle himself in the water, even in the land of wonderful swimmers, won him fame. But when he reached manhood, he waned as an attraction and had to hunt for work. He is only twenty-three now, said Captain Kavanaugh, and as fine a specimen of manhood as I have ever seen. He is ever inch a gentleman and I am sure you will like him. Captain Kavanaugh concealed a yawn, 
glanced at his watch, rose and with a good night all, sauntered into the clubhouse. For a long while, the group on the veranda stared at one another in awed silence. Most were inclined to view that the story was a yarn of the baldest Munchausen type. But when the crowd broke up half an hour later, all had resolved to be on hand the following evening and meet the Duke. The Arctic Club has a very liberal-minded membership made up for the larger part of businessmen about town, and it opened wide its arms to Captain Kavanaugh's prodigy, Duke Kame. The Duke proved to be a rather likable young fellow, well-dressed, well-mannered, and not at all forward. I could find but one fault with him. That was a vanity of dress that he affected. So extremely high was the white collar he wore that it concealed his whole neck, reaching to a point just below his ears. But so naturally did he wear it that under the spell of his personality, one was willing to forgive him it. I liked him from the start, and inside of an hour we had become friends. I persuaded him to tell the story of his adventures among the seals, and he gave it almost word for word as Captain Kavanaugh. I must admit, he was convincing. Even Patterson, who bore the nickname Old Unbelief, accepted it with the comment, Highly improbable, but possible. Yes, sir, possible. Later, we took the Duke down to the club natatorium and let him inspect the tank, with a view to giving us an exhibition of his skill in the near future, little thinking that he would that very night see it demonstrated. Teat Henry Treat, a personal friend of Captain Kavanaugh, was standing on the slippery tiling at the deep water end of the tank, explaining its construction to the Duke, who stood on the other side. When, returning to a swimming device which was swung in the rafters, his foot slipped, precipitating him into the water. As the pool at that hour was closed to bathers, no attendants were on hand, and Treat, being unable to swim, sank. I cast around for a swimming belt, intending to jump in and help him, but suddenly the Duke shot past me, cleaved the air, and struck the water at the spot where Treat had last appeared. Almost before the rest of us comprehended his move, he rose again several yards out, supporting the form of the now unconscious clubman. It was an hour before Treat was able to walk without assistance. He departed for the laurels, his palatial home on the sound, insisting upon the Duke's going along as his guest for a few days. The Duke had changed into dry clothes, which had been furnished by the club members, but and it caused me to wonder at the time. He stubbornly refused to exchange his bedraggled collar for one of mine. I did not insist, knowing that he would have his own soon sent up from the yacht. Before he left, though, he promised he would swim the harbor the following Sunday, rain or shine, and we all voted him a good sport. As Sunday was but two days away, preparations for the exhibition were immediately begun. Patterson saw to it that the newspapers had much of the Duke, so when the Sunday dawned, excitement throughout the city was rife. Large crowds thronged the two sides of the harbor when the hour announced for the swim had arrived. 
Captain Cavanaugh's yacht, with the Duke aboard, steamed to the west side, where Turns Cavill had made his fatal start. And along with a few of the boys from the club, I was fortunate enough to be aboard. Also, to add interest to the gathering, Treat had brought along his family, which included Ruth, his daughter, a girl of twenty, with whom I was on close terms. With many pangs of jealousy, for I, too, was an ardent admirer of Ruth, had reason to believe that my suit was savored. I noticed an intimacy that had sprung up between her and the Duke during their two short days of acquaintance. I think I began harboring a feeling of antagonism toward him from that moment. When he came on deck, the Duke presented a striking picture. Unlike other swimmers, he wore a black garment that reached from the tips of his toes to the top of his head, leaving only his face and hands uncovered. The upper part of the garment had a hood which he had drawn low over his forehead, and he appeared more like a character one would expect to see on the stage or at a fancy ball than at a swimming exhibition. Truly, he resembled a very imp of shadow as he stood poised on the bow of the yacht. He made but one stipulation, that no boats follow him. As the sky was fast becoming overcast with dark clouds, Captain Cavanaugh and the press boats acquiesced with considerable reluctance. Then, with a wave of his hand and a nodding smile, the Duke took a header into the bay, cutting the water without a splash, and a moment later his black head appeared many rods out. Nor did he head out the sound, as other swimmers had done, to make allowance for the incoming tide, but darted in a straight line for the crowded wharves across the harbor. To add to his difficulty, when he was a few hundred yards out, the squall that had been threatening struck, and soon white-capped waves were sweeping by the bay. Immediately, the yacht put out to escort him, but he raised an arm and vigorously shook his head, and an instant later, even the spy glasses that had been trained on him constantly from the start lost him among the waves. Fifteen, thirty, forty-five minutes, an hour dragged slowly by, and the suspense was becoming unbearable, when suddenly a great screeching of whistles came from the tugs and other boats across the harbor. The Duke had reached his goal. Everyone aboard the yacht glanced at his watch, and a murmur of astonishment went up. The Duke had done the four miles in the almost unbelievable time of seventy minutes. Several men hastened ashore to telephone for verification, and they came back with the startling intelligence that the Duke already was far out on the return trip, having reported at the goal and left immediately after. Ruth was the first to make him out as he approached. As he drew near, a rousing cheer went up. He was swimming strongly, and acknowledged the ovation with a playful dive, a wave of his hand, and a broad grin. To everyone's surprise, he refused assistance on reaching the yacht, springing lightly aboard, apparently not the least bit wearied. He hastened low to change into his clothes, and the yacht steamed back to her anchorage. When the Duke appeared again on deck, Ruth took possession of him. She was radiant 
and showed such a marked personal interest in him that, to conceal my disgust, I took myself off to another part of the boat. Of course, the Duke was lionized for the rest of that week, and I was certain I detected a strut in his walk, which he did not have when he first came. Also, he assumed an attitude of confident proprietorship toward Ruth, and I avoided them as much as possible to hide my growing antipathy for him. At the end of the second week, there became rampant at the club a rumor that Ruth and he were engaged and that the date for the wedding was to be set in the near future. Then, to top the climax, as it were, the treats invited me down for a few days, and the invitation was couched in such terms that I could not refuse. When I reached the laurels, I saw that the gossips had not erred. Ruth and the Duke were as devoted as a pair of doves. He trailed her around so closely that he gave me not one moment alone with her. Several affairs, a dance, a picnic, and a clambake had been arranged, and I joined in the fun with Will, if without heart, and I believed I concealed my feelings quite well. I was hurt deeply, but I said nothing of it. The afternoon of my arrival, the Duke gave a private exhibition of his swimming, and his performance was truly wonderful. As before, he wore the black suit with the hood, and when asked why, he replied that he had found black to be the color best adapted to swimming, and that the hood held his hair in place, which was long and heavy and would otherwise annoy him. He went through a maze of intricate movements, performing with ease every feat I had ever heard of being done by swimmers before. With watch in hand, I timed one of his underwater swims, and I gasped with astonishment when he stayed under a full four minutes. It was marvelous, staggering to the imagination. Out on the lawn that evening, he entertained us with stories. He was a born narrator, and when he talked, everyone within the sound of his smooth, silky voice felt the power of his personality and hung on his words in thrilled silence. There was one tale he told that deeply impressed us all. It was about a superstitious belief current among the islands that when a child is born on the water, it oft-time takes on the ways of a fish sometimes even to the extreme of being deformed with webbed fingers and toes and similar peculiarities. So strong is the native's faith in this tradition, the duke declared that to appease the wrath of the gods of storms, they often return to the waves a child born on them. He said he was positive he was born at sea, and he was so much at home in the water and in conclusion laughingly raised his hands to show that they were not webbed. I could not stay near and see Ruth throw herself at the man, charming though I admit he was, so I strode down on the beach to be alone with my thoughts, resolved to return to the city on the twelve o'clock boat that very night. It was eleven o'clock when I returned to the house. Everyone seemed to have retired, so I slipped around to the rear. Owing to its having been built on the edge of a bluff overlooking the sound, in the rear the second story of the house was the ground floor. The veranda, which the library and several bedrooms faced, extending across the back. 
I stepped into the library to get my bag and there found Treat waiting for me. Without explaining why, I said I was going, and he gripped my shoulder in a fatherly manner that I gulped. I realized that he understood how things were with me, and though he said nothing, I knew he favored me rather than the Duke for a son-in-law. His hands were tied, however, for Ruth was a girl of strong will and used to having her own way. He paused in the library door and followed me with gloomy eyes as to overcome with my emotions to speak, I turned down the moonlit porch. I know I walked like a man in a trance, for I was stunned. All the joy seemed to have been blotted out of my life. I'd gotten halfway to the steps when a reflection of the moon in a window as I passed suddenly broke in upon my reflections and made me pause. The curtain had fallen away from the window, and as I peered into the room, I recognized it as the bathroom of the Duke's suite. Feeling guiltily like a peeping Tom, I was about to pass on when my eye fell on the bathtub, which was close to the window. I started violently. The tub was plainly revealed, and I noticed that it was full of water. Peering closer, I saw a myriad of bubbles rising at one end, and I was fascinated and stopped to watch them. Slowly, the outlines of a form in the water below revealed themselves. I caught my breath, and for a moment, my heart stopped beating. While my hair rose on end, I shuddered. In the tub, with all but his feet submerged, lay the duke, and the toes that stuck up were covered with short, gray, silky fur and joined to one another by a film-like skin similar to the webs of a duck's foot. Drawn as by a magnet, my eyes followed the obscure lines of the body till they came to his neck. Then, suddenly, my knees went weak, and with eyes sticking out and jaw sagging, I leaned against the window and stared. Both sides of the duke's neck, from his collarbones to a point an inch below his ears, were opening and closing with the regularity of his breathing, and each time the muscles expanded, a thick, dark red fringe appeared in each of the openings, while a large bubble and many smaller ones streamed from his lips and rose to the surface. I understood then why the duke was so much at home in the water. He had gills like a fish! My bag fell from my nerveless fingers, and with a hand pressed to my throat in an endeavor to hold back the screech of laughter that struggled for expression, I turned, wide-eyed with terror, and staggered back to where Treat still leaned against the library door. The end. Thank you, or merci beaucoup, for listening to Marley's Ghosts with your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts, or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com.
I love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, visit my Patreon, where we have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own special treats. Rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.